We're going to go into Dr. Tripp's case. A very pleasant 82-year-old gentleman who recently widowed and his daughter is an RN. So pretty much every step of the way has been a prolonged discussion as to how to continue his treatment. But he presented to me as a second opinion with a PSA of 158 <laughs> uh, approximately four years ago when he was 78 years old. And he had at that time 18 biopsies that were completely benign. He was placed on ProScar and as I said, he presented with a normal prostate exam and a PSA of 158 with all biopsies normal. That was four years ago. Yes, that was five the years ago. The 158, okay. What do you do, incidentally, in that situation, just to start, Laurie? He either has acute prostatitis or he's got a world record size prostate, like a kilo. 265 grams. It's not world. 265. Well, he's getting up prostate. there. He's at the Olympics. Uh, <laughs> he, may not be winning. he may not be meddling, but he's up there. Or he's got prostate cancer. Having said that, if it's prostate cancer that is driving his PSA to that level, the likelihood of cure is very low. The chances are high that he has disseminated disease, whether you can detect it or not. So I tend not to get too obsessed about making the diagnosis in these patients. He clearly deserves probably two sets of biopsies, two sets of you know, multi-core biopsies given the volume of his prostate, 14, 16, 18 cores. You said the first set was negative. I assume it was multiple cores, but not just sextant. So I would do a second set, and then if those were also negative, I would stop. You haven't said anything about whether he has symptoms of acute prostatitis. I assume his history is unremarkable in that respect. And I agree. I mean, he's got a huge prostate. What about voiding symptoms? Moderate. Moderate. AUA symptom score of 30. He had, as you had suggested, he had multiple biopsies, 18 biopsies up to that point. And his prostate is 265 grams. And despite the biopsies and the mild to moderate obstructive symptoms, his PSA progressed to 158 and didn't know what to do when he came to me with that initial presentation. At that time, the first thing I did was a bone scan with a PSA of 158. And without a biopsy, his bone scan was diffusely positive. A CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis was negative. So he had all the biopsies previously and no bone scan? No bone scan. And at that time, his response was of shock because his biopsy three months earlier was completely normal. What was his lifestyle like, family situation? When I had seen him, he was recently widowed, but he was playing golf three times a week and only interested in how long he was going to live and just a robust 79-year-old at that time. And his daughter, who was a nurse, was also very much a part of what was going on? Right. Again, also, she was shocked with a negative biopsy and a diffusely positive bone scan and no diagnosis, obviously, a tissue diagnosis at that time. So despite really not having a positive biopsy with their anxiety level, Casodex and then three weeks later, Lupron was started. And at that time, within about a month, I did another set of biopsies, this time 16 biopsies under anesthesia. That was about five years ago. And a TURP to obtain tissue diagnosis at that time, mainly for obstructive symptoms, but I also would like to have had a tissue diagnosis. And of course, all of the biopsies and 40 grams of tissue were normal 
with no diagnosis of prostate cancer. So maybe you can just stop at this point. Dan, what are your thoughts about this case and treating him without a tissue diagnosis? Actually, you've got diffuse metastatic disease. Have you tried to put a needle into his bone at all? To uh... Not at that time. We have almost an identical case like this. A gentleman whose PSA was about 200, who had multiple prostate biopsies, he had metastatic disease on bone scan, and eventually we resorted to going to his rib to taking a piece of his rib out and then making the diagnosis that way. Now, in his rib, was it just a positive bone scan, or he had lesions on x-ray? He had lesions on x-ray. He had an expansile lesion in his right rib. Did this man have any lesions on x-ray or just on bone scan? Oh, he had lesions on x-ray, but we had had not enough time to... I mean, we eventually did the biopsy right around the time, but we had wanted to do an initial set of saturation biopsies or relatively Mm -hmm. saturation biopsies and a TERP and obtain as much tissue. When that didn't happen, within three weeks, we did a biopsy of the bone of the rib. And what was seen? And that was just a few cells, but poorly differentiated prostate cancer. But I must say, I don't do that because I think you have a diagnosis Mm -hmm. of metastatic prostate cancer based on his PSA and his bone scan, and you're going to treat him with hormonal therapy. These cases come along. In fact, the case where you have an older man who's got a positive bone scan and a very high PSA, I think you can argue not to do the biopsy at all because it really doesn't change the treatment. It's helpful for prognostic purposes, but it's also an invasive procedure. So I'm not sure what you really gain by subjecting the guy to a bone biopsy. Dan? Actually, well, we treated this patient as you did initially, and then we went and got the bone tissue later. And the reason why you have to obtain tissue is for any clinical trial for this patient Subsequently, they need a tissue diagnosis of prostate cancer. And in fact, this patient was ineligible for one of the studies because we obtained his tissue from his bone and the study required a Gleason score from his primary prostate biopsy. So that's the major advantage of obtaining tissue in the situation. But if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Anthony? I was just going to add, you ruled out all the possible etiologies of benign prostatic disease. With all those cores you took, you would have seen some inflammation on the prostate biopsy specimen if he had some degree of prostatitis you'd expect, and you apparently didn't see that. I assume he didn't have recent cystoscopy, colonoscopy, no passage of a renal stone recently. If you go through all of those things and you've ruled everything out, then the only thing left is retention. He has lower urinary tract symptoms at an AUA symptom score of 30. If he had recently gone into retention and then his PSA on repeat subsequently came down, you could give him a course of antibiotics if you're worried about infection. All this is controversial. So those are all the things you could have done up front. Now, at this juncture, when you get the bone scan, it lights up, you know, one of these scans that are diffusely positive. I agree at that juncture, what you really then have to assume is huge gland, huge sampling error. Even 50 biopsies in a 265-gram gland is still a very, very poor sampling. You can hide a Gleason 8 in there easily. The one thing we would have done at that point, and it's not standard of care, is we get an endorectal MRI, which can sometimes disclose an area of abnormality, and then with the second set of prostate biopsies, go in and do additional areas in the area where the MRI discloses concern. But be that as it may, you now know you have tissue and you know it's prostate cancer from bone and you would treat as you've suggested. The only other thing is the biology here, and I don't know what people's thoughts are on this, but when I've seen these, these types of presentations, large prostates, huge sampling error, and then this bone scan that lights up everywhere, and there's no large study on this, they tend to do worse. 
because they tend to be truly maybe the few Gleason tens that exist. And they seem to be hormone refractory or very short responses to hormonal therapy. I'm talking from a handful of about five or six cases I've seen like this in my career that they don't tend to respond very long to hormonal therapy. But that's anecdotal. So can you bring us up to date on the case? So he was started on Zomeda at that time in addition to the Lupron and Casodex. He had an excellent response in the first year. His PSA was 0.1, which was his nadir. That was approximately four years ago. And then over a six-month period, his PSA rose to 15.4. And then at that point, the next treatment that we did was that we withdrew the Casodex. His PSA went down to 0.16, with the bone scan showing decreasing METs, although, you know, in direct comparison, it was maybe a little bit less diffuse, but there was still a diffuse picture of metastasis on bone scan. The PSA nadir was 0.16 and then rose to 2.1 within six to nine months. And at that time, nilandron was started as the third level of treatment. And at that time, the PSA rose slowly to 5.8. And then approximately six months after that, the bone scan showed new rib lesions. Throughout this time, he was receiving Zomeda. And then at that time, the fourth level, ketoconazole was started. And the PSA, despite the ketoconazole and the hydrocortisone, the PSA rose to 29.1. And then that brought us up to approximately a year ago with a PSA of 41, having failed Casodex, Casodex withdrawal, Nalandron, and Ketoconazole. In July of last year, Taxotere was started, Taxotere-based chemotherapy with prednisone. And at that time, his PSA, well, it didn't rise, but it stayed in the 50 to 75 range. The PSAs were quite variable. He received Taxotere for nine months, and then he stopped that. And over this past six months, his PSA actually rose from 75 to 125. And that leaves us off to right now, where his PSA is at 125, relatively asymptomatic despite a diffusely positive bone scan and getting ready to start his next regimen. Any specific problems, GI toxicity, you know, neutropenia, nail changes, no. fatigue? just fatigue, mild nail changes, neutropenia, never to the point of being hospitalized or having a fever, but just not being able to do anything with regards to his energy level. Dan, what would you be thinking at this point, And what do you think about this course? It's typical. I mean, if he would have satroplatin, satroplatin would be a great drug for him at this point. Outside of satroplatin, mitoxantron has been used in the setting with some response rates, generally the response rates are about 10 to 12% overall, navalbine, oral cytoxan. But we, again, right now don't have an approved FDA agent for second-line chemotherapy in these patients. Is there an expanded access program for satroplatin? Yes, there is, and that is open and actively accruing patients. So the, and what's involved in getting it then? Just simply they have to go to a site that has it approved. It's actually for second or for third-line patients. I know you wonder whether this man might feel differently if he started to get more symptoms from the disease. But in the absence of that, how often do you see people having so much problem with fatigue with docetaxel that they really don't want to get it again? Generally, I see that towards the end, it's almost like a bimodal distribution. You'll see patients who are very fatigued at the beginning, 
then they sort of adapt and they get used to it. And then as they get more courses of treatment towards the end, they seem to increase their fatigue. There really isn't any way to combat that at this point. We don't have any pharmacological manipulations that we can do to help that.